We'll turn with me now in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 3. I'm going to read from Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Ezekiel chapter 3, 1 through 15. We'll continue our sermon series this morning through the book of Hebrews by looking at Hebrews 3, 7 through 4, 11. But to provide a little bit of context, we're going to look first at Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, in which we are given that vision, that story, by which Ezekiel was called into his prophetic office. So Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 1 through 15 Hear now the word of the Lord. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat that scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate and it was in my mouth like honey and sweetness. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many people of unfamiliar speech or of hard language. Those words you cannot understand. Surely, had I sent you to them, they would have listened to you. But to the house of Israel, but the house of Israel will not listen to you. Because they will not listen to me. For all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. Behold, I have made your face strong against their faces. And your forehead strong against their foreheads. Like adamant stone, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, Receive into your heart all my words that I speak to you and hear with your ears. And go, get the captives to the children of your people. And go to the captives, to the children of your people. And speak to them and say, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or whether they refuse. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me a great thunderous voice. Blessed is the glory of the Lord from this place. I also heard the noise of the wings of the living creatures that touched one another and the noise of the wheels beside them and a great thunderous noise. So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away and I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit. But the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. Then I came to the captives to Tel Abib who dwelt by the river Chibar, and I sat where they sat, and remained there astonished among them seven days. Amen. Ezekiel receives his commission to preach the prophetic word to the Israelite exiles in Babylon with two commands. The first, in verses 1, 2, and 3, is to eat the scroll. This metaphor, this vision, this prophetic experience is of ingesting the judgments of God. He is, through his teeth, his tongue, and his belly, 
to become a person whose flesh is full of the word of God. He is secondly commanded in verse 10 and following to receive into his heart through his ears the words that God speaks to him. This is not metaphor. This is not vision. This is the literal application of the first metaphor or vision. That just as he symbolically digests the word of God by eating the scroll, so he literally listens to the voice of God that he might speak what God has to say. This is the prophetic office. To receive from God his own word. And through one's own flesh and blood to bring forth that word. It is not a surprise that the one prophet in the Old Testament who is continually called son of man. There is only one other prophet in all of the scriptures who is called son of man and his name is Jesus. Should have as his commission to the prophetic office a vision in which the word becomes flesh. This incarnational vision is further extended when he is warned like so many prophets. And I am sending you to your own. And your own will not receive you. I am sending you to familiar people with familiar speech. And they won't listen to you. And they won't receive you. The same message was given to Jeremiah. And in John chapter 1 the same experience was found by Jesus Christ. He was a prophet without honor in his own hometown. But Ezekiel, like Jesus and like Jeremiah, is given two great comforts to sustain him in what is ultimately what we might call a failing ministry. First, verse 12 and 14, the Spirit lifted me up. Ezekiel will be held up by the Holy Spirit himself. He will be sustained and supported by the Spirit himself. And secondly, the hand of the Lord was strongly upon me. Ezekiel isn't excited about his job. In fact, we're told that he's enraged. With bitterness in spirit and intense anger, he sits in astonishment for a full week after his commission. You thought Jonah was the only reluctant prophet? My friends, it's a long list. Jonah didn't want the job. Jeremiah didn't want the job. Ezekiel didn't want the job. And yet, this commission was fulfilled through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the indwelling of the Word of God, to the good of our souls even to this very day. With that hope in your heart, turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Our sermon this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 3. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 7. And we're going to read through verse 1. The Holy Spirit in chapters 1 and 2 has already established for us that Jesus was superior to the angels who came to the patriarchs in Genesis. The understanding that the patriarchs had of God was largely through angels, visions, voices, these heavenly visitations. But Jesus is better than that, says the Holy Spirit. 
Now, in chapters 3 and 4, we're looking at how the Holy Spirit says that Jesus is superior to even Moses, who surpassed the angelic revelation of Genesis. And it became Moses who dominated the landscape in revealing God to his people. So here in Hebrews 3, 7 through 4, 1, let's hear again the superiority of Christ. Hear now the word of God. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Is it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Amen and amen. Atherosclerosis. I practiced and practiced and practiced. I had Google say it to me. Again and again. Atherosclerosis. Do you know what it is? Is the leading cause of death the world over. It is the hardening and calcification of the vascular system. The leading cause of death among humans is a literal hardening of the heart. How do you get it? Well, there are three ways. One, you have a genetic disposition. You are born with a propensity to it. Secondly, you live a lifestyle that feeds that genetic disposition. Causes it to flourish and to prosper. And thirdly, you get old. There are no human beings past the age of 65 who do not have some degree of atherosclerosis. Doesn't this sound like a very striking medical description of our spiritual condition as human beings? We are born with a sin nature. 
a natural propensity to a hardness of heart, a resistance to grace, a selfishness, and an unkindness. We live a life in which we feed those appetites, in which we strengthen our earthly ambition, in which we calcify our souls. And if you are anything like me and have reached any level of time on the earth, if you have heard anything about what has gone on in the world this week, you know it is easy to harden your heart. It is easy as you age to accumulate sins, to accumulate sorrows, And to just want to turn everything off and not feel anymore. And to be tired. To be tired of having feelings. Tired of sharing them. Tired of being wounded. Well, I have a passage for you. And I have a passage for me. Good news for the weary soul. Good news for the hardening heart. Good news for those fed up with sin and sorrow and the estate of sin and misery. Jesus gives rest. Jesus alone gives rest. This is the good news for our text. This is the truth to heal our hearts. This is the truth on which to build our weak. Jesus alone gives rest. So let us repent and believe together. So let us repent And believe together. Look at the text with me. Please notice first the structure of the text. In verses 7 and 8, we are given a principle. The Holy Spirit teaches us that we are not to harden our hearts in rebellion, trial, or wilderness. But then in verses 9 through 11, we are given an illustration of once in the history of the people of God where they did, in fact, experience rebellion, trial, and wilderness, and they did harden their heart. And then thirdly, it is applied. Verses 12 and 13, beware and exhort. This pattern, explain the truth of God, illustrate the truth of God, and apply the truth of God, is then repeated. In verses 15... 14 and 15, rather, the principle is repeated. Only this time it's not connected to the Holy Spirit, it's connected to union with Christ. But because we are united to Christ, we are to remain persistent in our confidence. And Psalm 95 is quoted a second time. Do not harden your heart, as in the rebellion. The principle, the truth of God, is given to us first in verses 7 and 8. Second, in verses 14 and 15. That principle is then illustrated for us. First, in verses 9 through 11. But second, in verses 16 through 19. We are returned in those verses to the wilderness. And those who for 40 years fell there in unbelief. And so then, verse 1 brings us to the second application. Therefore, let us fear. Do you see the outline? Do you see the structure? I take a moment and I give it to you for one really good reason. It's kind of cool to see it. 
Because when I was in seminary, I was taught by my preaching professor that every sermon should explain, illustrate, and apply in that order. And I thought he was just being a good rhetorician. And here we find it in our text. So let's look at the principle. First, verses 7 and 8 tells us that we will be in rebellion. We will be in trial. And we will be in wilderness. The psalmist does not here say that it might happen. Or that if it were to happen. He says it does happen. All believers who follow Jesus to glory will have experiences of rebellion. Here is the great tragedy And the great fear through which we must now walk in this sermon. There are people in pews today who are in rebellion while in faith. They believe in Jesus, but they will not submit every piece of their life to him. Here's the greater tragedy. We are all guilty. We live by faith, yet in rebellion, clinging to sins we don't want him to have, clinging to pride, clinging to self. And there's a part of my life I don't want him to touch. And don't you know it? That's the part he goes right after. But we also in this life are in days of trial. We're not in rebellion, but we're in trial. Where our faith in the goodness of God seems thoroughly contradicted by what we see and what we hear. If the things for which Tom prayed this morning do not make you question the goodness of God, you either have a much greater faith than I or you didn't hear them. We pass through trial. What happened in Allen, Texas, tries my faith. How can he be good and do that? I do not excuse him. I acknowledge the trial. Even as I acknowledge my own rebellion. And so too the wilderness. The place without resource. The place without water, without food, without friendship. The place of utter loneliness and weakness. We are told that as believers, we will in this life wander in wilderness. In places where we are lonely and afraid. In places where we are weak and weary. In places where we are without resource. And it is striking to me that it is in this context... That when we have laid bare the reality of our lives and the reality of our faith, you will walk through rebellion. You will walk through trial and you will walk through wilderness. In some weeks it just feels like all three. And the Holy Spirit says to you, do not harden your heart. Do not let moments of rebellious sin turn into months of sin. Do not let months of sin turn into years of rebellion. Don't harden your heart. 
However long you have put off repenting of that sin, put it off no longer. Let the rebellion end today. Surrender to Jesus. Repent and believe. However long you've been in trial, dear friends, hold fast. Don't quit. It's true. He's good. He's wise. Hold on. Don't quit. Do not harden your heart. Do not abandon the faith. But then thirdly, in wilderness, when you are without resource, when you are there in the desert and you are parched of thirst and you find no answer, what do you do? Well, let me tell you what our fathers did. They walked out into that bit of sand where it was dirty and it was hot and it was lonely and it was hard. And they found this great big hunk of boiling hot granite and they sat down around it and they watched as water gushed from it. Do not harden your hearts in the wilderness. There is living water that makes springs in the desert. Do not harden your heart in the day of trial. There is a faith that can hold fast and anchor within the veil. Do not harden your hearts in the rebellion. Repent of your sin today. This is what the Holy Spirit says to us today. Let's have soft hearts. Now to illustrate for us how important, indeed, how imperative it is that we do this, the psalmist turns back the clock and looks into our own history in verses 9 through 11. And he says that our fathers tested God, tried God, saw his works for 40 years, and yet, according to verse 10, they went astray in their heart and they did not know his ways. In this series of verbs, we have the summing up of the story of Israel in the wilderness. That for 40 years they walked with God. For 40 years they ate his bread from heaven. For 40 years they drank water from the rock. And according to 1 Corinthians 10, that rock followed them wherever they went. They were never without the supply and provision of God. And yet every time they experienced the slightest pang of hunger, every time they experienced the slightest earthly or Egyptian ambition, they poked God. And they said, you don't love us. They tested him and tried him. They said, you don't care about us. You brought us to the wilderness to kill us. You brought us to the wilderness to punish us. There's no love in you. There's no promise you're going to keep. Their hearts were hard. They went astray from God. They departed from Him. They didn't know His ways. They didn't know that being led into the wilderness was an act of love. They didn't know that being brought into trial was an act of love. They didn't know that patience with rebellion is an act of love. They didn't know his ways. They didn't understand that his ways are higher than our ways. They are ways of forgiveness and of mercy. Why did he lead them in the wilderness? 
that he might know what was in their hearts, whether they would depend on him or not. Why are we deprived of every earthly comfort so that we might find the one comfort worth holding on to? Jesus himself. Why do we walk in the wilderness so that we might find the rock that is with us, the rock that is living water? Why are we led into the day of trial? Because as James tells us, by trial, our faith is perfected. It is proven a real faith, a deep faith, a lasting faith. Why are we allowed to linger in rebellion? Because as Peter tells us, it is the patience and kindness of God that brings us to repentance. These are his ways. His ways are loving and good. And when we harden our hearts and say, I don't like the wilderness, get me out of here. I don't like the trial, get it off me. I want to stay in my rebellion. God says, you don't know my ways at all, do you? You don't know how much I love you. You don't know that what you're going through is out of my deep love for you and the good that I am doing you. And all these quotes, verses 7 through 11, we're told that they come from the Holy Spirit. But we know from the little footnote in the margin or at the bottom of our page that they also come from Psalm 95. And this is the very end of Psalm 95. And you sang this morning, and Tom read to you this morning the beginning of Psalm 95. What is the opposite of a hard heart? What is a soft heart? Oh, come to the Lord, joyful songs let us sing. Loud praise to the rock of salvation will bring. Why did he choose rock? How many metaphors for God are there in the Bible? How many names of God are there in the Bible? Why did he choose rock? Because at Massa and Meribah and in the day of rebellion, in the day of trial, in the day in the wilderness, when all Israel fell on their faces in unbelief, God struck the rock that was Christ and living water flowed. Oh, come to the Lord, joyful songs let us sing to the, le- the rock of our salvation. This is a soft heart. A soft heart says, my days of rebellion are at an end. Today the rebellion ends. I'm going to the rock, I'm drinking water, and I'm going to sing praise with joy. The soft heart says, the trial can linger as long as God wants. I will stay beneath the weight of the cross, and there I will sing his praise. The soft heart says, In the wilderness, I will sing his praise. Hungry and thirsty and alone, though he slay me, I will trust him. This is the soft heart. How do we get it? It seems out of reach, doesn't it? It seems dreadfully out of reach. Verses 12 and 13 apply this principle. How do we walk through wilderness, bear up under trial... And get rid of rebellion. Maintaining a soft and spiritually supple soul before God. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief 
in departing from the living God, in leaving the presence of God, in leaving the means of grace, in leaving the life that God has given to the church of Jesus Christ. Only the evil and unbelieving heart departs from the presence of God. But notice, he doesn't say, hold up a mirror and study your own soul. He doesn't say, examine yourselves, brothers. Are you leaving the living God? Are you slowly, through unrepentant sin, growing hard toward the ways of God? Are you slowly, through the weight of your trials, growing resistant to the grace of God? Are you slowly, through the sorrows of this wilderness, finding yourself unwilling to love others? He doesn't say that. He says, beware, brethren, lest any of you, but let us exhort one another daily. The Holy Spirit puts it upon the congregation of the Lord to perceive unbelief in the heart of one another. The Holy Spirit puts it upon you to look for hard, love-resistant hearts and to speak to them and to warn them, today is the day to repent. Today is the day to receive grace Today is the day to cast off the shell and the calcification of the soul. Today is the day to reject the deceitfulness of sin. The sin that says your rebellion will not come into judgment. It's a lie. For your sin you will enter into judgment. It is the day where we cast off the deceitfulness of sin. That says the trial is bad for us. And relief from the trial is the thing you should seek. It is a lie. The deceitfulness of sin tells us that God has brought us into the wilderness to hurt us, to wound us, to weaken us, and it is a lie. The deceitfulness of sin is what works upon us and within us, and we desperately need brothers and sisters who see the hard heart, who see the weak, unbelieving soul, sidles up to us, throws an arm around us, and says, Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and drink. Come to the living God and find your thirst quenched. Let us exhort one another. Before I pass through these verses and we come again through this same pattern, there is one word I want to hit very hard. Verse 12. When should we do this? Daily. Allow me to gently suggest that a lot of us struggle with hardness of heart because we do not have daily fellowship of the saints. We do not have brothers and sisters who daily say to us, beware your unbelieving heart. Beware the hardening of your heart. Sin will have its way with you. Sorrow will overwhelm you. The trial in the wilderness is too great for you. Come, pray with me. Come, read with me. For several years now, we have said very gently from this pulpit, do you have a prayer partner? 
Do you have a Bible reading partner? Do you have a midweek group? Do you come to the Sabbath evening prayer meeting? Do you have family worship? Do you have private worship? Let me implore you. If any or all of these are lacking, end the rebellion today. End the rebellion today. You can't get through this world without saints, without brothers who hug you, who weep with you. You can't get through this world without sisters who call you to account. There must be some way for your soul to daily hear, come to Jesus, come to Jesus and live. The Holy Spirit, knowing that we don't often listen the first time, and knowing that you can hang a picture a lot easier on two nails than one, goes back through the same exact road to drive home his point. Verse 14 and 15, the Holy Spirit says to us, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. The proof that we are united to Christ is ultimately found and fulfilled only in our death. That when we come to the end of our faith, when we come to the exhaustion of all our resources, which we sometimes feel and experience in our daily life, but ultimately is only fulfilled in our death, it is then that we find Jesus sufficient. It is then that we find Jesus all-sufficient. I certainly can attest to you, as a minister of the gospel, as a weak and feeble believer in the gospel, that the closer you come to a desperate state of despair, the more thoroughly you find Jesus refreshing and sufficient. He looms larger and more beautiful the closer to the end we come. It is a marvel to me, my friends, that as I hear of men who were mentors to so many ministers of the gospel in the RP church passing into glory these past weeks. Friday afternoon, I watched one funeral. Saturday afternoon, I watched a second. By Saturday night, I hated death. But let me tell you, neither men died with praises of a cappella psalm singing on their lips. None of them died with praises of pastoral ministry on their lips. They came to the end. They looked Jesus in the face and they said, that is enough for me. It's all we'll have. We are partakers of Christ if we don't replace him with anything else along the way. If we don't heap upon him or hide and obscure him with our rebellion, with our desire to be free of trial and wilderness, if we instead cling to Jesus as we heard in the previous chapter 3 sermon.
If we hold to the beginning to the end, our confident, steadfast, and firm faith in Jesus, while it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. This is our principle. Life will be hard, but Jesus will be good. Life will hurt, but Jesus will heal. Life will end, but Jesus will give everlasting life. This is the principle that through the Holy Spirit we are partakers of Christ. And my friends, if partaking of Christ is not enough for you, there's nothing I can offer you that ever will be. We can't add to it. I cannot. This principle is then illustrated again in the wilderness. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Oh, this is terrible. Who's in rebellion? Those who experienced deliverance from Egypt. Those who saw the ten plagues destroy the kingdom of this world. Those who were baptized into Moses. Those who crossed the Red Sea and came out safe on the other side. Those who received the law at Mount Sinai. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? How amazing is it? Is it not a terribly amazing thing that they who were in rebellion against God, unwilling to go into the promised land, unwilling to enter into the rest that he had sworn for them, He yet walked with them for 40 years in the wilderness. I'm almost 40. This terrifies the daylights out of me. You mean I could walk with Jesus and eat his bread from heaven and be baptized with his water and fall short? Are you jumping out of your skin? He's not talking about bad people in Central Square. He's talking about you and me. And how we'll sing psalms and we'll hear sermons and never let go of our rebellion. And slowly the heart hardens. Who hardened their heart? Who rebelled? Those who walked with God for 40 years in the wilderness. To whom did he swear? They will not enter my rest. They will not get into the promised land. But to those who did not obey. They didn't follow his word. They didn't make him their one and only. They didn't follow his word. They made for themselves images of him. Instead of resting on the word from him. They didn't follow his word. They didn't reverence that name. They didn't treat his revelation as sacred. They didn't follow his word. They didn't keep Sabbath. They didn't let the land rest. They didn't let the people rest. They worked and worked and worked and worked until they were almost dead. And then they were thrown out of the land. They didn't obey. They didn't honor their parents They didn't raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. They didn't love life. They slaughtered babies in the womb. 
They didn't love purity. They went after sexual immorality at every turn. They fornicated on every green hill. They didn't love the possessions of others and their well-being. They stole and they oppressed the poor. They self-aggrandized. They didn't love the truth. They didn't love their neighbor's good name. They gossiped and slandered. They weren't content with God. And they sought after every blessing he had withheld from them. And they grumbled against every blessing he had given them. And if you think I'm just talking about a people 3,000 years ago in a desert, think again. Oh, beloved, we are undone today. I'm undone. So we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. They didn't believe in the ways of God. They didn't know them. They didn't have an intimate, loving relationship with the ways of God. Their unbelief, their unwillingness, their hardness of heart to acknowledge Jesus is in charge and I'm going to do what he wants. Their unwillingness to say Jesus is going to have his way with his church and I don't need to meddle with it. I can let him run it. I can be his servant. They were unwilling and unbelieving. And they stand for us as an example according to 1 Corinthians. That we might not fall into such unbelief. That we who have been baptized. That we who partake of these good things. That we who walk with God. Do not for a minute begin to think. That that religious performance is what's going to get us in the rest. Because boy, can we exhaust ourselves being godly. Being self-righteously godly. And we need to believe in Jesus. And see in him our rest. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Therefore, because it was unbelief, not the experience of the means of grace. They experienced the means of grace. Because it was unbelief that kept them out of the promised land. Because it's belief in Jesus alone that gives us rest, that gets us into heaven. Because we must come to him who is the rock of our salvation and sing him joyful psalms in our rebellion, trial, and wilderness. Therefore, because this principle is true, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it, have come short of entering his rest. And I am afraid. Again, like the, second, like the first application in verses 12 and 13, the command is not to be afraid that you will fall short of it. The command is to be afraid lest any other should come short of it. And I am afraid. I am afraid 
that my preaching has left many of you short of rest. And I, I am afraid that my shepherding leaves so many of you short of rest. And I am afraid that I do not rest. Forgive me. I cannot give you rest. Please do not look to me as the source of rest. Look to the content of my sermons for rest. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. It's in his work. I wasn't going to go here in my sermon, so I don't know how to end it. Friends, Jesus does indeed give rest. You need it, and I need it. And since that promise remains, that is to say, since it's still there to be had, you, the restless saints, and I, the restless shepherd, we have a promise today. We can find rest. The promise remains. Let us rest. Let us find rest. Let us repent of our rebellion. Let us not chafe under the trial. Let us not seek the quickest exit from the wilderness. No, let us stay with Jesus. And let us find rest. Jesus will give you rest. Jesus will give me rest. He will give us rest, beloved. Jesus alone gives rest. Let us repent and believe together every day. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for the sun shining in its strength. We thank you, Father, for a beautiful day of worship, where the reading of your word and the singing and especially the preaching of the word according to the prayers of your people are blessed by the Spirit. We give you thanks, our Father, for this opportunity to hear of how much is in Christ. And, Father, on a day where we hear so much darkness and despair, where we are surrounded by so much death, where our faith is rattled and shaken, where our sins are higher than our heavens, where our shortcomings overwhelm us, we give you thanks for a gospel We give you thanks for good news that when we have come to the end, there we shall see Christ. We give you thanks for the blessing of his Spirit's message today. 
But he speaks to us who are in rebellion. He speaks to us who are under trial. And he speaks to us who are in wilderness. And he says with Jesus, come to me, you who are heavy, burdened, and who labor, and I will give you rest. Father, forgive us. Father, forgive me for striving and not resting in Christ. Father, enlarge our hearts today that we might run in this command and might this day have rest. Thank you for this beautiful day, a day of rest. Give us rest now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.